Welcome to Sojourners in the Storm Bible Study Podcast. Uh, we've been away for a few weeks as the holiday season and the new year passed, um, but we are getting ready to start up again right now, and we will be beginning in the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bibles with you, open up to chapter 1 and verse 1, and uh, after a brief introduction, we'll get into it. So uh, with that, let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank you. Again, Lord, for this day, thank you, Father, for just the opportunity to share your word. Father, I pray that uh, you would just bless us, Lord, in this study. Father, that you would just go before us, Lord, that your word would come forward and not my own. And Father, that this would just be uh, a time of learning, a time of growth, and a time of edification for all of us. Father, I thank you, and I pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John Mark, is believed to have been written sometime around 63 to 64 AD. It is one of the oldest New Testament books that we have in canon. It is believed to have been written in Rome. Others also say that it was possibly written in Alexandria or Galilee, but the most common belief is that it was written in Rome. So it is believed that Mark wrote before the end of the Judean-Roman War, that took place between 66 and 70 AD. And the reason for this is the emphasis on suffering found throughout the gospel. Um, and that may in part be due to the persecution that the believers were dealing with uh, concerning Nero, who had taken office around the same time. So Nero was one of the emperors of Rome. This guy was a pretty terrible person. As far as persecution goes of uh, Christians and early Christians in that in that day, um, he, he was one of the worst. Um, he's a guy that was uh, responsible for killing his father at his mother's direction when he was a young child. Um, he later killed his mother, and he also killed a few of his wives as well. But uh, this was a guy that would take Christians, dip them in oil, and use them as lamps in his garden parties. Uh, you know, he would sew them together and have them attacked and mauled by bears and lions in the arena for entertainment. You know, he was a very oppressive individual that led a very uh, oppressive and forceful nat uh, nation. You know, they were uh, very dominant. They were very heavy-handed, were the Romans. Um, D.S. Gregory writes about this time, the grandest Roman. The ideal man of the race was therefore the mightiest worker, conqueror, organizer, and ruler. The man who was Caesar would sway the scepter of the universal empire. Caesar and Caesarism were the inevitable result of Roman development. When the Roman had been made to feel most deeply the natural justice in the hands of the human despot is a dreadful thing for a sinful man. The Holy Ghost prepares for a comment to his acceptance of Jesus of Nazareth as his sovereign and savior, the expected deliverer of the world. So looking back into the historical context of this book, in that day to resist Caesar was fatal. People longed for mercy. They lived in a police state and that type of government is always a satanic type of government. Now it's one with a simple man ruling over other sinful men who in turn cry out for deliverance. Now the only person throughout all of history that's ever been able to deliver the mercy and justice that people need and deserve is Jesus Christ. 
Paul wrote back in this time uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. You know, Paul was writing that, you know, he wasn't afraid to proclaim the gospel. He wasn't afraid to, to speak the name of Jesus, to teach about him, to lead people to him. You know, it was a very difficult time for believers in that time. Whether you were a Jewish convert to uh, Christianity or whether you were a, a Greek or a Gentile that had accepted the Lord. It was tough for you because you were seen as an outsider. You were seen as a, both a sect of the Jewish people that followed the Nazarene, as they called it. And, and you were also seen as somebody that denied Caesar as Lord, but accepted Jesus Christ as Lord. And that was a big no-no in that time also. You know, grace, mercy, and forgiveness, justice, were all in great need in that day. And so God used Mark to write this gospel to a nation of Gentiles who may or may not have already believed, but needed the message anyways. Ancient biographies often uh, made particular moral points through the example of their heroes. And Mark is no exception to that rule. He wrote in a way that showed his fellow Christians that Christ's call involves both power and suffering and conflict with uh, satanic forces. There are a few key themes for us to look for as we go through this book. First, there's the aspect of answered prayers of the suffering. Uh, Jesus does hear and heal many in this gospel. There's also the aspect of persecution and even the loss of life that comes with belief. And also there are the failures of the disciples that kind of gives us a look into the ever-growing maturity that comes with our walks. You know, it's, sort, it, it's a sort of reminder to us that we are always in a state of grace and growth, and that even though we may not be completely changed over to the radical lifestyle of our faith, Jesus will work with us to get us there. Now, as for Mark, we know that he was not an apostle. Concerning the other Gospels, we know that John and Matthew were numbered among the twelve. They were apostles. And Dr. Luke also was not an apostle, but he was a close personal friend of Paul and did investigative work in compiling the Gospel that he wrote. Now, Mark is believed to have been an assistant to Simon Peter, or Peter as we know him, and a cousin to Barnabas, who was also a, an apostle. Uh, you know, we read in Acts about the relationship between Peter and Mark through the church. Now, if we look at Acts chapter 12, verse 12, it says, So when we, he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together and praying. So in context of the story, what happened was Mark, uh, or Peter, I'm sorry, was put into prison, uh, and an angel came and you know, basically set him free. He broke the chains off of him. He let him out. Uh, Peter was unsure of what was actually really going on, but when he got out, he went out and he sought out uh, Mary's house here. So Mark's mother was obviously a wealthy and prominent Christian in the Jerusalem church, probably on, um, one that hosted church services in her home. Peter was probably uh, around often for these gatherings, and so they knew each other. Now, it's also believed that Peter is the man responsible for leading Mark to the Lord. And we have proof of that if we look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. Uh, Peter writes, So uh, no, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. 
and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. So we know that from Scripture that John Mark was uh, accompanied to Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey. In Acts chapter 13, verse 4, we read about that. And so it says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, uh, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. So you might be getting a little bit confused because I keep calling him John Mark, and you keep hearing John and Mark and, and all these different things going on. So it's important for us to understand this. John was his Jewish name. Mark was the Latin name given as a surname to him. So we know him as Mark, but his full name was John Mark. So um, if we look at what happened between Mark and Barnabas and Paul, um, there was some sort of a dispute that took place during the first missionary journey when they were all together. We know that something caused him to turn back from the journey with Paul. And many say that he was it was because he was a little bit yellow-bellied and he turned back. He was maybe a little bit scared of, of what was going to happen when he went out there. Um, he would later be recommended by Barnabas to come along on the second missionary journey. And a dispute about that led to the split of Paul and Barnabas. You know, they got so contentious that they didn't want to travel together because of the company that Barnabas wanted to bring. We read about that in Acts chapter 15, verse 37. And it says, Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they, they parted from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. So from this point on, Barnabas goes largely unmentioned in Scripture. But we do have two uh, references made to Mark later on. First of all, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, it says, uh, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, whom uh, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And later we see that at some point he reconciles with Paul. I think that in his youth and maybe immaturity could have... Uh, he, he turned away from the first mission with Paul, and that caused Paul not to trust him. But later on, uh, it, you know, it kind of soured their, their relationship. But it seems over time, Mark was able to prove himself to Paul and to prove his character. So we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Only Luke is with me. Greet Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. You know, sometimes personalities clash. Sometimes we get two types of people with two types of gifts. Where Paul was an outspoken and brave evangelist, Mark seems to be more of a servant plowman. You know, there are roles for both in the church. And although one may not be always as recognized as the other, God uses both for his glory. Now, the gospel of Mark is really, in some senses, the gospel according to Peter. Now, it's largely recognized that Mark followed Peter and wrote as Peter taught. Um, some accounts from early church leaders confirm this. So looking at Papias, he writes this. Mark, the interpreter of Peter, wrote carefully down all that he recollected, but not according to the order of Christ speaking or working. 
Asubius, early church uh, father, writes this, Such a light of piety shone into the minds of those who heard Peter that they were not satisfied with hearing, nor with the unwritten doctrine that was delivered, but earnestly besought Mark, whose gospel is now spread abroad, that he would leave in writing for them the doctrine which he had received by preaching. So, you know, obviously we see that what Mark was writing down was being taught by Peter. You know, he was writing down the accounts that Peter was teaching as Peter was going out and evangelizing, um, uh, you know, around Jerusalem and, and other areas. So this is also one of three synoptic gospels, along with Luke and Matthew. Now, synoptic is a term that means symphony. All of the accounts in the synoptic gospels are in harmony according to the accounts they present, but are told from different points of view. Now, this is something that gives a lot of authenticity to uh, the Bible and to the gospel accounts. Because what happens is, if you have different points of view of, of different events that took place, you're going to have more than one. It, it basically says you have more than one witness to an event. So take, for instance, we are at a basketball game and something happens under the basket, right? Where uh, the person sitting right underneath the basket is going to get a pretty good view of what happened. Maybe they see where the basketball went out of bounds or something, if this is what the play was. Somebody else sitting up higher in the bleachers is going to get a different point of view of this. They're going to see that when the, the ball was stripped, well, maybe... Uh, the person that stripped the ball into them was pushed into them or something like that. And the last person, maybe somebody behind it, is going to see a different view of it altogether. But they all saw the same thing, but from different viewpoints, from different places. So they're all going to get different types of descriptions of these things. And that's what you have with the Gospels. You have the same stories, the same events take place, but you have different descriptions because the people that were there saw things a little bit differently. But what gives it authenticity is they're not all the same story. If they would have all been the same exact story, word for word, line by line, you could tell that there was collusion in it. But because there is no collusion in it, now you have an authentic story. Now you have different witnesses. It's like being a police officer and, you know, asking questions at a crime scene. No two people are going to give you the exact same story unless the story is made up. Now, carrying on, this is the action gospel. Peter was a man of action, and so his accounts came from the perspective, uh, that sort of perspective. Now, it does not begin with the genealogy, as Matthew, Luke, and John do. The nativity is not emphasized. We are instead taken directly into the earthly ministry of Jesus. Now, another fun fact, if we look at Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 10, and it says, As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man. Each uh, of the four had the face of a lion. On the, on the right side, each had the uh, each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. Now, as it goes from this account given to us by Ezekiel of the Shekinah glory of God, we seem to have repre uh, a representation of each face of the angels mentioned as representative qualities of each gospel. Okay, so the verse that we just read is describing an angelic vision that Ezekiel saw when he saw the Shekinah glory of God. But each one of these angels had four faces, the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. Now, the face of a man is representative of Luke's gospel. 
which gives us the accounts of Jesus as he was fully man as well as fully God. The lion is representative of Matthew, written to the religious Jews who sought their Messiah to deliver them from the oppression of Rome, but found the Messiah that delivered them instead from death and destruction. The ox represents the servant king, written by Mark to the Romans and the Gentiles. And the eagle, which is always representative of divinity in Scripture, tells us of the divine nature of Jesus, who is fully God, as he walked among us in the Gospel of John. Now, if we look at the genealogies in each of the Gospels that we are given, we see Luke give a lineage of Jesus' human nature. We see Matthew give the line of, of Jesus' uh, royal bloodline. And John give the divine birthright genealogy, uh, his divine birthright, right? Uh, genealogies are given because a king needs to have a lineage. But none is given here because we are talking about the servanthood of Jesus Christ. And a servant does not need lineage. He does not need a birth certificate. What he needs are references. Now, in this gospel, we do not find any religious tradition. We do not see any customs explained. We only see the work that Jesus did. It is an action book written to outsiders in the, the Gentiles. You know, they were men of action and accomplishment. And so Mark explains Jesus in their sort of cultural understanding. He gives us photographs, if you will, of the ministry of Jesus. Not long stories, not much details, but snapshots of what took place during uh, the time of Jesus' earthly ministry through those, first, those three years. Now it is said that in this gospel, the word and is used over 1,300 times. Now and is a connective word that expresses action and accomplishment. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is the creator of all that exists. He is royal, uh, he is holy, and he is divine. But he is the servant king as well. He is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, that says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not carry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Now in this book, we will see Jesus take off the royal robes, put on his garment, and go to work in service to the Father. It is our example of service to him in doing the work that we are called to do. You know, one of the greatest verses and one of the greatest things that Jesus ever said, and is very representative of what, uh, what the message of this gospel is about, comes in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, and it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. You know, think about that. You know, he gave his life for us that day on the cross so that we could live. He served us in the ultimate way by laying down his life for us. You know, the serving king that laid down his life for his people is a direct contradiction from what the world expects today. You know, it is why we must learn to live differently, to live boldly, and to live sacrificially in service to the Lord. And so with that, let's get started. In verse 1 of, of chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark, it says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So all things that we have begin with God. Now, in the Bible, there are three beginnings. The first beginning that we find is in John chapter 1, verse 1. And I'll read that to you. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word 
was God. This is the beginning that has no real beginning. God has existed through all eternity. Now it's hard for us to comprehend that. He has never not existed, but it is so. Uh, you know, when we see a, an airplane in the sky, for instance, as we're walking outside, and we look up, we see this streak floating across the sky. Well, we understand that that, print, that airplane had a starting point, and it's going to have an ending point, right? It, it, you know, it had a, a beginning, and it has an end. But that's not so with God. God has no beginning, and He has no end. He is infinite. And it's hard for us to comprehend because we are finite. You know, uh, He is the uncaused cause of all causes, the creator of all that exists. If we really think about God and reduce it down to its basic uh, existence, you know, he existed before time. He is sovereign over time, and he is going to exist beyond time when time ends. Now, the second beginning we have is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this is the beginning of physical existence. The point in infinity where the finite universe was created by infinite God. It is the point that we can look back to as the beginning of physical existence, the start of our existence and all that we see and experience. We may not know how old everything is, but we do know that all that we see has a beginning and eventually will have an end. This also marks the beginning of time, which God created. He exists both outside of and inside of time which is pretty awesome. You know, God is is beyond powerful. And it's hard for us to comprehend these things sometimes, but, you know, He is who He is. And, you know, all we can do is bow the knee to Him. Now, the last beginning we have is Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, this is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. This is where God reaches down into His creation and puts on flesh, not only to lead us, but to sacrifice for us in order to redeem us. Jesus Christ is the good news. He is salvation. He is God from the beginning and will be until the end. This is the beginning of his physical ministry. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, we read a prophecy that says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings and good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You know, ancient writers often mention the main themes in their books. In the introduction to and Mark is no different. He introduces the theme of Jesus, the good news of salvation, the bringer of a kingdom who will conquer evil and Satan and will drive out demons and heal the sick. In verse 2, we read, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Prophecy is fulfilled in the life of John the Baptist. You know, there are a whole lot of Old Testament references, uh, not a whole lot of Old Testament references, I should say, made in Mark. But we are given a few as, re as a reference point to Jesus. Remember, we are not given a genealogy in terms of Jesus' royal lineage and birthright. We are given references to his work. So, looking back, ancient Jewish writers were very knowledgeable and often used bits and pieces of other works in their writings without really ever citing them. Now, here we're given two references, one from Isaiah, 
in verse 2 and the other from Malachi in verse 3. We're given an explanation of Isaiah chapter, four, uh, chapter 40 that John, who is the forerunner, will come to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. The account of John the Baptist in Luke's gospel confirms this. If we read in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now, in the eighth year, in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and the region of Trachonitis, uh, and, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Okay. The second reference is from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and refers to the Lord coming and setting straight his people in judgment and sorting them out. Now, this is confirmed in the life of Jesus. Um in, in the acts that he he does. And we'll get more into that as we go in with the book when uh, when he talks about separating the, the sheep from the goats, uh, the wheat from the chaff, you know, the toes, for, uh, the, the tares from uh, from the wheat. You know, it, it gets into that. Jesus didn't just come to uh, teach us a better way, but he came to, in judgment also. He came to divide us. He came to let us know that, hey, if you're not sold out for me, then you're not sold out at all. And there's going to be judgment. There's going to be punishment that comes for that. In verse 4, we read, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were, baptized, and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So we are all called to God on the same terms. Many people around the world believe in a ceremonial type of cleansing or baptism. You know, this was the same for ancient Jews as it pertained to any non-Jew that accepted the way of the Jewish God. Um, many of the Jewish people of the day believed that they were saved or their salvation came from being born into a Jewish family. You know, they believed that their lineage was what was getting them saved. That's what brought them closer to God. Now, it was also customary for Jewish people to practice repentance. They uh, would ask for God's forgiveness and determine to change. Old Testament prophets also used the Hebrew concept of changing one's mind, which is in the literal sense the same as repentance for us. You know, when we think of repentance, we think of turning away from our sin and going in the opposite direction. We think of purging sin, uh, the, the purging of the sin in our lives, and the sin nature in our lives as we seek a closer relationship with God. Now, repentance is a key function in the life of a believer. Without repentance, we are dead in the sins that we are asking forgiveness for. If we continue on and doing the same thing over and over and over again, without having a change of heart, without having a conviction, without having uh, a mind to stop those things, well, then we stay dead in them. We choose that over the better way. Now, for the ancient Jew, the greatest form of repentance is for a non-Jew to repent and follow God. Now, the message here, though, is one of repentance for all the people, both Jew and Gentile. You know, John the Baptist was, uh, Baptist was gruff and a rugged individual. His message was direct and pointed, and he held nothing back as he spoke about repentance. And uh, let's take a look at Luke chapter 3, verse 7, and it says, 
Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to them, said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not imitate, uh, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. So John the Baptist was the type of preacher that we need today. He told people what they needed to hear instead of what they wanted to hear. He dismissed the idea that the children of Abraham were saved because of lineage. He identified the needs of every man to come to God along the same lines. You know, we come to him in brokenness and humility without the expectation of partiality. And it is uh, in that uh, true repentance would come. And it does come. That meant that being born Jewish was not enough. A person still had to come to God on God's terms, not on man's terms. You know, when he says, uh, some of you say that, um, you know, we have Abraham as our father. Well, that doesn't count. You know, Abraham is the father of, uh, of the Hebrews, the father of the Jews. And just because you're of his bloodline, because of, your, of that lineage, it didn't save you. You know, I hear very often today folks talking about being uh, Christians because they grew up in Christian homes with Christian families. But as we see from John the Baptist's message, we all have to, uh, to make an individual choice to follow God and turn from our sin. You know, it's not an ancestral right that we ha uh, are given at birth. We have to make that choice. We have to be born again. In John chapter 3, verse 3, uh, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, the, the Jewish teacher, explains this also. And he says, Jesus answered him and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, we are all coming to Jesus, and we all must be born again. You know, it doesn't matter if we grow up in the home of Chuck Smith or Billy Graham. We are all held accountable for our decision to either come to the Lord or not. Nobody can make us make that decision for us. Our environment does not determine our loyalties. That discussion is made in our uh, that decision is made in our hearts. You know, concerning the Jews that were coming and hearing the message of repentance that John the Baptist was speaking, consider the landscape that he was in. Now, the wilderness described here stretched about 75 miles north and 75 miles south and 10 miles east and west. It was in the hill country of Judea in the Jordan Valley. Um, it was a very natural venue for cleansings and baptisms. And it also had some historical and prophetical meaning to the Jewish people because, as we read in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5 and 6, it says, Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain hill mountain and hill brought low the crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth the glory of the lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the lord the mouth of the lord has spoken 
So there was an expectation that the Messiah would be revealed in that place. And it just so happens that he was. You know, many Jewish groups would go into that area of the wilderness and camp out and wait on God's Messiah to appear. It was all a popular place. And so in it, God really drew many people to the message of John the Baptist and in turn prepared the way for Jesus and his ministry through him. Uh, verse 6 says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with the leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So the final Old Testament prophet was John the Baptist. Now John was a man that was set aside by God for ministry from the beginning. He was a Levite. He was of the order of the priesthood. His father was a priest. He would therefore have been expected to serve in the temple. Now where John was different was that he did not conform to the norm. He went out and he called people out into the wilderness. He was gruff. He was a, a man that depended solely on God and not on society for substance. Remember, the Levitical priesthood was given a portion of each sacrifice to eat and sustain themselves. Here we have John the Baptist outside literally eating bugs in the desert, as well as wild honey. And, you know, I could imagine he was probably crunching down on some bees on the way when he was eating that honey. You know, he created the Levitical robes of linen and the ephod for camel's hair and a belt. You know, I like to watch this show. It's called Life Below Zero, and it's about Alaskans living a subsistence lifestyle and using the hides of animals that they hunt to make clothing. Now, this is done by skinning out the animal, tanning the hides, sewing them into clothing, and, uh, you know, making soft and warm fur coats for themselves. Now, what John was wearing was totally different. You know, there's no mention of wearing the hide of a camel. He was wearing camel's hair. And so what he had was basically a wool made out of woven camel's hair, which is kind of rough, kind of prickly. And it was sewn together into a tunic with a leather belt around his waist. You know, he was basically wearing a burlap sack. Or for us New Mexicans, we call them gunny sacks for clothes. You know, we talk about hype men in this day and age. You know, somebody that goes before a main attraction and sort of lifts them up in support. Now, I tried looking up famous hype men and found a bunch of different names of people that associated with hip-hop. You know, I did see, though, that Robin Hood had Little John. Barack Obama had Joe Biden, and Joe Biden has CNN as well. And Jesus Christ had John the Baptist. Now, I'm not trying to pick on any presidents or anything like that. I just thought it was kind of a funny little joke that I saw in there. But um, um, how would you like to see this guy coming out and announcing you? He probably looked more like a homeless person than a forerunner to the God of creation. That, uh, But there he was. And this should be a reminder to us that God uses the foolishness of men to confound the wise. Dr. Gail Irwin writes this. If I were organizing a series of crusades around my own ministry and sending someone ahead to prepare the way, I would send a handsome, smartly dressed, smooth-talking ambassador who would in no way embarrass me. Jesus obviously didn't do it my way. Instead, he used a raving, rough-hewn man who dressed inappropriately for a minister and was committed to organic foods. On To top it all, he closed his service by doing the most undignified thing, dunking in water those who were brave enough to respond. So what is important about John the Baptist's appearance is that Elijah dressed the same way and was expected to return before the end. Many Jewish people believed that there, was no, there were no longer prophets and that Malachi was considered the last. But 
that they would be restored before the end. And so John is the prophet that bridged the gap between the old and the new and put an end to the intertestamental, intertestamental phase in announcing that Christ had come. In verse 7 it says, And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John announces the impending arrival of Jesus. Many people were wondering if John was the Christ. And if we look at Luke chapter 3, verse 15, we see that. And it says, Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. You know, somebody bringing a message as radical as his would certainly draw the interest of those hearing it uh, as to who he might be. You know, quickly though, John changes the narrative of popular opinion with the truth of the matter. His explanation is that he is not the Christ, that he is subordinate to him who is to come. He is not worthy to untie his shoes, in fact. You know, the message that John preached was the message of repentance, of change and preparation. The message of baptism and cleansing is only a means of preparing one's heart for the reality and the instruction of Jesus Christ. The introduction of the world uh, he introduced the world to the decision that each and every person from that moment on until the last Gentile is saved is going to have to make. Do I follow Christ or not? You see, Jesus wasn't just coming uh, to get people to behave better. He's not assigning the standard of man's works, but, how to de uh, but to determine who would follow him and who would not. You know, take a look at his, this account in Matthew chapter 13, verse 11. It says, I indeed... Uh, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, this is the important part here. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You know, Jesus came not only in instruction, but in judgment. He came to sort out his people from those who were and were not his and make a distinction between the two. His baptism was higher than John's. John's was preparations for the culmination of God's redemption of mankind. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the down payment for our eternity in heaven through our acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and the recognition that we desperately need him. You know, the world may believe in good works and life change, but without Jesus, all those works and deeds are nothing but vanity. They, you know, the passage here also are specific to God's kingdom arriving. The Old Testament speaks of God's Spirit, or the Holy Spirit, being poured out like water. The thing is, though, that only God can pour out the Spirit of God. The baptism, in the, This baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, endows His people to speak for Him because He works through them. We must understand that a slave also in those days would do menial tasks for the master. That included washing, dressing, taking off their clothes. John the Baptist's statement is that even uh, as a slave does, uh, he did not consider himself worthy of, of the lowest of the jobs, and that was dealing with his, his shoes. You know, the shoes are the dirtiest part of our clothes, right? Who knows what we're stepping in out there? But he said, I'm not even worthy of that. This guy that's coming before me is so great. 
you know, he identifies Jesus as God. And he's basically saying that the kingdom of God has arrived. You know, in everything we do, we need to understand that we do it under the authority and the direction of God. The servant is not greater than the master, and the meek will inherit the earth. You know, John had great power in his message, but in meekness, he was in uh, subordination to Jesus. He knew that, right? I must uh, decrease and he must increase, is one of his lines. You know, the meek will inherit the earth, and meekness means to have great power under control. Each and every one of us that believes, each and every one of us that is saved, and each and every one of us that has the Holy Spirit working in us has great power, but we keep it under control. We understand what's going on. And I'm not saying we're going out there and moving mountains, you know, literally or physically or anything like that, but great faith is, is a powerful thing. But we do it under control. We do it with humility and humbleness and brokenness. Because without those, we have no faith. You know, faith is trusting that Jesus is going to get us through and not ourselves. You know, John never deviated from the truth. He never parted from the word. It would, have, uh, later, it would later cost him his life as he was imprisoned and beheaded by Herod at the request of the daughter of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife whom he was trying to have a relationship with. Now, no matter what the accolades that we may have come our way, no matter the recognition that we receive in our service to God, we must always be of the understanding that it is God who works in us. It is he who empowers us, and it is he who commissions us. And we, like John, are not worthy of even approaching his feet. We serve the king that exists beyond time and space that created time and space and came down into time and space to save a group of people that deserve the worst and most severe punishment. You know, the awesome thing about God is, instead of punishing the sinner, he put our sins on his own son for us. He sacrificed him for us on a cross in the most shameful way possible that we, in turn, might ask forgiveness through his son and be reconciled back to him through that. How awesome is our God? You know, he created us for fellowship with him so that he could be our God and we could be his people. We are all born separated from him, but are given the opportunity through Jesus on the cross to once again identify with him. We are spared the judgment to come by him and by, and by his sacrifice on our behalf. And so he deserves all glory and honor and praise. He is the name above all names. He is Jesus Christ. And next week we're going to get into his baptism. And we'll start working into the first year of his ministry. This is a gospel that goes very fast. Like I said, it gives us photographs, snapshots of what's going on. And so we're going to take those bit by bit and piece by piece. And we're going to go line by line through this gospel as we have through all the other books that we've taught through here. And, you know, I pray that you would stay with us. I pray that you would continue on and, and become a part of the group, you know, and, and weekly these messages are going to come out. You know, every once in a while we take a little bit of a break. I do have a job. I do have other things that I, I do. But, you know, this is the priority in life, to get the Word of God out. You know, just as John the Baptist was doing it, you know, I'm praying that you guys are listening and hearing the message of repentance, that Jesus is coming. And He's already come once, but He's going to come again. Father God, Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Son, Lord. Father, I thank You for sending Your Son to die for me, Lord, to take my place in judgment. Father, that through him, Lord, that I could know you. Father, 
uh, you know, my life is yours. And, and I pray that it, so many more lives would be yours also. Father, that you would work through us, that you would work through these groups, that you would work through these messages and through these teachings. Father, I ask you again, please just go before us this week, Lord, as we seek to serve you, as we look for the opportunities, Lord, to be your, your servants, Lord. Father, I pray that you'd put on all our hearts. Father, I thank you and I pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen.